The scripture reading this morning will be taken from Jeremiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, and verses 11 through 13. This can be found on your pew Bibles on page 665. Jeremiah 2, 1 through 5, and 11 through 13. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Go and cry in the hearing of Jerusalem, saying, Thus says the Lord, I remember you, the kindness of your youth, the love of your betrothal, when you went after me in the wilderness in a land not sown. Israel was holiness to the Lord, the first fruits of his increase. All that devour him will offend. Disaster will come upon them, says the Lord. Hear the words of the Lord, O house of Jacob, and all the families of the house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, What injustice have your fathers found in me, that they have gone far from me, have followed idols, and have become idolaters? Verse 11. Has a nation changed its gods, which are not gods? But my people have changed their glory, for what does not profit? Be astonished, O heavens, at this, and be horribly afraid. Be very desolate, says the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and honed themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. Good morning. It is good to see each of you. If you're a guest this morning, again, we welcome you. It does encourage us that you're here, and we hope that we can be an encouragement to you. Hope you're having a great 4th of July or Independence Day weekend. What a wonderful blessing it is to have time, uh, perhaps to be off work a little bit extra, to be uh, spending time with family a little bit more, but let's not forget the importance of the day itself. What a wonderful blessing it is to have independence that has given us this nation, that has given us the freedom that we enjoy to worship. Are you open? We've been asking that question all year long. Are you open to deeper worship? What do you mean exactly by deeper worship? You know, as we grow and mature in our relationship with God, our worship ought to continually grow and mature also. And so are you, are you open to maturing, to growing a deeper relationship with God? Remember last month's theme? Are you open to God? And now as we think about are you open to God, are you open to a deeper relationship with God? You can't draw near to God unless you know God better. You can't draw into a deeper worship with God unless you know God better. And so this month we want to just continue this study of knowing God better, but especially this month on Sunday mornings, knowing God better as it pertains to what He would want for us to know and to do as we worship Him. We will come back on Sunday nights throughout this month some, and we will look at God the Spirit even greater and hopefully answer even more questions through the Word of God of helping us to know the Spirit of God better. One of the great passages that we will work from the basic principles of these passages is in John the fourth chapter. If you'd like to turn there briefly by way of introduction, I'd like for you to 
have in your mind a passage you probably know pretty well. And if not, it's one worth getting to know. It's John the fourth chapter, Jesus talking to the woman at the well, and then the topic of worship is brought up. And in 22, she says, John 4 and 22, Jesus is saying to her, you worship, talking about her, you worship what you do not know. Pause there for just a moment. This morning, where we're going in this lesson this morning is going to have a lot to do with, do you really know who you worship? He looks at this woman and says, you worship, sure, you do, but you do not know. What if you're here this morning saying, oh, I'm, I'm here, I'm attending a worship service, I'm here to worship this morning, but do you really know? Do you really know the God you worship? Do you really know why you're worshiping the God you worship? So he tells her in 22, you worship what you do not know. We know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews. Now notice this in 23. We're going to see three major principles here. But the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers, notice the E-R-S. He's not just talking about right now just true worship. He's talking about the people that are going to worship God. Are they going to be genuine? Are they going to be counterfeits? Are they going to be the real deal? Are they going to be individuals that outwardly, they look like they're worshipers. They're sitting among a place of worship. They seem to resemble worshipers, but inside God would say they're not true worshipers. Who's God looking for? Look again at 23. The hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers, what will they do? They will worship. The word worship means pour out adoration. So we're going to adore God. The true worshipers will worship who? This is the second major thing. Not only first, true worshipers. Second, we worship the Father. God is the recipient of our worship. We worship the Father, what? In spirit and in truth. Lowercase s for spirit. It's all of our being that we're taking into worship. And truth is the standard by which we worship. Notice this. He's already brought up. Are you a true worshiper or not? Are you worshiping the Father? Keep in mind, we don't worship religion. Big difference. We worship the Father. How do we worship the Father? In spirit and in truth. Now, Let's finish this. He's just going to keep saying the same thing again. It's for emphasis sake. Look in 24. God is spirit and those who worship him. Who is it? We're back to this. Those, the true worshipers who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. God wants to know, are you a true worshiper? Are you pouring out your adoration to him? Are you doing it the way he's asked in spirit and in truth? Who are you? Who do you worship? How do you worship? This month, we hope to develop those things. But isn't it wonderful that we have the freedom to do that? In 1620, there were pilgrims that were called separatists by their native home because they didn't want to conform to the Church of England. And they decided they would load boats and they would make a dangerous voyage that would take over 60 days in the Atlantic Ocean. And as they would make that voyage, you can imagine preparing for that, maybe, and I'm just speaking hypothetically, but can you imagine what the discussions might have been? Can you imagine maybe one woman talking to a neighbor, and her neighbor is saying, you're doing what? Sure, we're, we're going to take the voyage. We hear of this land, and, and in that land, we believe that we'll be able to worship as we choose to worship. We believe that we won't have to conform to the church of England, that we can worship God. And you can imagine, even today, 
How much sacrifice would you make to worship the Almighty God and you have friends that would make no sacrifice? They wouldn't even set their alarm this morning. So can you imagine someone saying, to be able to worship the way I want to worship, I will leave my home, I'll leave my native land? Oh, wait a minute. You must not be thinking clearly. You're going to put yourself at risk? Yes, I will take that dangerous voice. Get this, mothers. You're going to put your children at risk? Yes. We are going to make that dangerous voyage. Why? We believe that there's a land where we can have the freedom of worship. Friends, what does it mean to you to have the freedom to worship God? Now, I know history is being rewritten. And just that word alone describes enough rewritten. But friends, all you have to do is go back and look at the Constitution. And look... What is the very first, think of order here, what is the very first Bill of Rights? The first Bill of Rights demands that the government will not enforce upon her citizens a religion that is state-run. And that it will give the freedom for them to exercise their right to worship. Today, we enjoy the freedom to be true worshipers, to worship God as He says. You know, when we consider that beautiful event, about 2,300 years before that event, there was also a lot of confusion taking place about worship. And I'd like for you to consider for just a moment King Josiah. Now really to understand him, you have to drop back to 2 Kings. And you may want to be turning back to 2 Kings 21. And that's on page 352 in the Bible that's in your pews. And I'd like for us just to look at a few things about him. And then we'll talk about his contemporary Jeremiah. And then the lesson will be yours. Let's think about history just for a minute to make sure that, that we're all kind of on the same page of understanding this story. You remember that God came to Abraham and He made him a great promise. And we call it the covenant that God made with him. And there were three primary parts of that covenant. He told him that he was going to be the father of a great nation and that he was going to give him a land. Every nation needs a land to live in. And that through his lineage would all of the nations of the earth be blessed. Now that last one had to be very special to Abraham at that point in time because he and his wife wanted children so desperately, but Sarah was barren. And it would be when he was 100 years old that finally God would show him the fulfillment of that prophecy that he would give him a son. But let's go back to that for a moment that he would give him a nation and a land. He gave him a nation, and it is Israel, and it gave him a land. And oftentimes we refer to it as Israel or to Canaan's land. And you remember when finally they went into bondage and they were being led out by Moses and eventually into Canaan's land by Joshua, one of the things that they were to do was to destroy all of the Canaanites because they were idolatrous worshipers. They did not do that. And because they did not destroy them, the idolatry perpetuated throughout generations. And because of this, one of the great struggles of God's people was turning to the appeal of idolatry. Now you may think, what's so appealing about idolatry? Idolatry always lent itself to fleshly nature. 
And so just like today, if, if I knew whatever sins you struggle with, I could say, what is the appeal to, and just fill in the blank to whatever you struggle with, and you'd say, oh, I understand what the appeal of that is. That's what I get up and wrestle every day. That's what, that's what I pray about. That's what I ask for God's strength about. So idolatry was an appeal to the flesh. Because keep in mind, idolatry is not about the true and living God. It's about the God that man creates. Israel eventually was divided into two kingdoms, the northern and southern kingdom. The northern kingdom was oftentimes referred to as Israel. The southern kingdom was referred to as Judah. The northern kingdom was on a fast track of destruction. Whenever a nation leaves God, God stops protecting the nation. And so they were much more wicked than that of Judah, even though Judah had plenty of spells of wickedness. But one of the reasons why I guess that God would oftentimes say to Judah after Israel had been destroyed, he would say to them, you are more treacherous than Israel. Now that's strange when Israel was the more wicked one and was more quickly destroyed. But what it seems like God is saying to them is, didn't you learn anything from your sister to the north? You watched the children of Israel be destroyed so quickly because of their wickedness. Did you not learn from that? Apparently they didn't fully learn from that. In 697, now keep in mind, B.C., remember we're counting down at B.C., and so right about 700, down to the 640s, about 642, Judah had a king named Manasseh. He was one of the most wicked kings Judah ever had, and he was definitely the king that would lead them ultimately to the final ruin, and Babylon would take them over. It was during this terrible fall that we read of events like in 2 Kings, the 21st chapter, we read like in verse 3, he built up altars for Baal and put wooden images. And in verse 4, he built the altars in the house of the Lord. Now imagine this. Manasseh is taking, and, and friends, we're not talking about the Canaanites. We're not talking about some heathen nation. We're talking about Judah. We're talking about the tribe of Benjamin and Judah. This is unbelievable, you might think. They're going to go into the temple of God and they're going to build images and they're going to worship these images and they're even going to build altars and they're going to make sacrifice on these altars to these false gods. And we continue reading, for example, in verse 6. He even participated in making his son pass through the fire and participated in witchcraft meetings. And the fire that he's talking about is the worship of Molech. And, and it's just unthinkable that, that the children of Israel would even get involved in the idolatrous worship where the Canaanites would offer their sons as a burnt sacrifice. And here Manasseh is getting the children of Israel involved in that. He's leading the way in that. And then we see in verse 7, Asherah, it was another goddess. And we see that her carved images were also in the house of the Lord. In a minute, we're going to see when his grandson cleans up the act, what he got out of the temple that was probably pertaining to this God. And <clears throat> so you get a picture of, of during his 55 years of reign, he just engulfed Judah in idolatry. His son ruled for two years, then he died. And then an eight-year-old boy, it's easy to study the chronological uh, events according to his age in 2 Chronicles, the 34th chapter. But stay here right now and just let me mention these to you. At eight years old, Josiah becomes king. And then when he's 16 years old, there's something about Josiah that's beautiful. At 16, now keep in mind what he's inherited. He's inherited a place that is filled with idolatry. And for whatever reason, providence of God, the tender heart, 
he begins to think about his great, 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 great grandfather, who was perhaps the greatest king to ever live, King David. And at 16 years of age, he's looking at this idolatrous filled nation and he says, I want to find, says he began to seek the God of the King David. At 16 years old, he says, I want to find God. He knew God wasn't in all these idols. He knew King David's God wasn't carved out of stone. Man didn't make King David's God. King David's God made man. He wanted to find that, man, that God. And at 20 years of age, he became so convicted that all of this idolatry was wrong that as a young king, he begins to reform Judah by going in and destroying their altars and by destroying their images and, and doing great and powerful acts of cleansing, if you will. In just a moment, I want to show you some of those things, but just to keep this in the order of your mind, by 26 years of age, because they were cleansing out idolatry and because they were setting back up the temple, they found the law. And the law is brought to him. And you see that artistic rendering there. There's something not exactly correct probably about that unless that's several days after it was found when it was first brought to him. Now keep in mind, he knew he wanted to worship God, but God had been forgotten. He knew he wanted to worship God, but God's law had been lost. And finally, after several years of him searching for God, for 10 years he'd been searching for God, and finally God's law is found, and he has a man to stand and read it to him. And when, he, when they read what God's will was, reading the old law, he begins to cry, and he begins to rip his clothes because he realizes how far he and his nation has moved from God. And so now this puts his reformation on fast forward. Now he's going out 100% saying we're going to stamp out idolatry. We're going to stop all of these altars offered to uh, idols and we're going to start worshiping the one and only true and living God. In 2 Kings the 23rd chapter, I'd like to scan just a few things with you. In verse 5, these are some of the things that he did. And if this intrigues you and if you've forgotten about this, you may want to go back and read this this afternoon. In verse 5, he removed the idolatrous priest. And in verse 6, he brought out the wooden images from the house of the Lord. He's removing them and he burns them to the ground in 7. And in, and, I mean, at the end of 6. And in 7, he tore down the ritual booths of the perverted persons. Literally, he was taking out the booths where... Sodomites and prostitutes did their worship in the Lord's temple. And then in 10, he defiled Topheth. And Topheth, the root of that means drum. And that apparently was tied into the worship of Moelech where the very, very loud drums would play while the children were being offered on a burnt offering so that the parents would not hear the cries of their children. He destroys all of that. When you come down into verse 15 and 16, he even finds the cemeteries of the priest who had been offering worship to the idols and he digs up their bones so that he can punish them further by burning their bones. And then he turns later in this chapter to the living priest and he executes them. And then he turns to everyone who wants to turn to a medium or to a spiritist or if they want to turn to their household idol or God and he puts them all to death also. Friends, this chapter 
tells us at the end in verse 25, now before him, talking about before Josiah, there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all of his heart, with all of his soul, with all of his might, according to all of the law of Moses, nor after him did any rise like him. As a matter of fact, if we're not gonna take the time right now, but we could even turn back to Second Chronicles, and we can see how he instituted the Passover again. And, and he brought together a Passover that was unbelievable. They brought together 30,000 lambs. Any of you ever raised animals? You try to imagine that. We, we see a farmer today that has 100 head of cattle. You say, oh, that's a lot of cattle. You see somebody has 500. You say, whoa, they slew 3,000 cattle, 30,000 lambs. And the word of God says there wasn't a Passover like that since the days of Solomon. Do you get the picture here? This man was determined to turn Judah back to God. And I want to go ahead and tell you, he changed the religion. He destroyed their idolatry. They began to have a religion that reflected the Almighty God. But they never turned to God. Remembering religion and forgetting God. We're not through with this lesson yet, but that's the lesson this morning. How many of you are here this morning because you remembered that it was Sunday? And that's what your religion asks of you, is to go and gather together for a worship service on Sunday. And how many are here because they love God so much that they've come because of their great love for God to pour out their adoration to God. And yes, their God does ask them to come on Sunday to pour out their adoration. But their greatest love is not for the religion. Their greatest love is for God who gives the religion? Isn't it amazing that we have this whole nation turning back their religion to the Almighty God? But yet in a moment, we'll see the proof that they never turned to God. Outwardly, it appeared that they had. Be making your way over to Jeremiah, and let's just scan a few things in Jeremiah the last few minutes we have. Jeremiah was a contemporary of Josiah. As a matter of fact, Jeremiah also became in his office as a prophet at a very young age, like Josiah. Josiah was only eight years old. It is guessed that Jeremiah was probably around 20 years old whenever he was asked to be a prophet. And he says in the first chapter, I was too young. He told God, I'm too young. And God wouldn't allow that to be an excuse. And so he began to be used in a, in a powerful and mighty way. But you also at the same time have to have a little bit of sympathy for him because he literally was the prophet to a nation for 40 years. And his service of 40 years was the whole agonizing time that they were a dying nation. He literally begged with them to turn and begged with them to repent, and they never did. And he was there when Babylon came in and destroyed the city of Jerusalem. And so he had a hard and a difficult journey, but that doesn't take away the fact that he was a great prophet and that the words that he spoke were true. Well, what did he say to these people? He reminded them that God remembers, man forgets, 
And when man forgets, he always forsakes. Glance over this as we go back to the text that was so capably read this morning. Look at Jeremiah, the second chapter. Does God remember? Look at verse 2 where this is what the Lord says in verse 2. I remember you. God is speaking to Israel. Israel had forgotten and forsaken him. And how does God speak to them? He says, I remember you. And he says, the kindness of your youth. Now that was a generous statement, wasn't it? Because oftentimes in their youth, they murmured and complained against God. But you know, when God forgives, he, he, he forgets. And so when he looks back on their past, because he had forgiven them of those things. And so he remembers the kindness of their youth and he remembers the love that was betrothed to them. In other words, he says, I remember when you were like a bride and I was like the groom and how at times you had committed your life to me. They weren't doing that now, but in the youth of their nation, they remember, God remembers that. And he says, when you went after me in the wilderness, in other words, they followed him into the wilderness out of Egypt in the land not sown. Israel was holiness to the Lord. Pause there for a moment. Holiness is the very same root word in, in the original language as, as uh, sanctified, consecrated. In other words, Israel was a holy nation. Israel was a sanctified nation set apart. God is saying, I remember you. I remember setting you apart to be my own special people. But notice they didn't remember God. Look at verse five. Thus says the Lord, what injustice have your fathers found in me that they've gone from me and have followed idols? What a sobering question. Now again, this moment's not the invitation either, but I want to ask you, if your life is not right with God this morning, what injustice have you found with God? Have you ever thought about it that way? If there's no injustice with God, why aren't you giving your life to God? How has God ever mistreated you? He looks at these people and he says, sure, your fathers, they helped you get on the wrong path. Why were your fathers against me? What injustice do they have against me? God has never brought us into darkness, but into light. God has never brought us into death, but into life. God has never brought us into confusion, but into order. God has never brought us into anxiety, but into peace. God has never brought us into hatred, but into love. God has never brought anything into our life where we say, my life is now worse because God is here. What injustice does your fathers think that I've done to them? What do you mean, God? What do you mean? He says, look at them. They have forgotten me. Look at all the idolatrous ways that they have set up. And you know, you don't live in a vacuum. When you forget God, you're going to turn to something. File that away. That's a biblical truth. I need to let it slap me in the face. When you turn away from God, you will turn to something and anything else is going to hurt you. And so here's the turn. Look at verse 11. They forsook God and they turned to idolatry. Verse 11, the nation changed its gods, which are not gods. My people have changed their glory. Remember Romans 1, beginning at 21, when it talks about that spiral down away from God and the very first thing that they did, he says, when they knew God, Neither did they glorify Him as God. That's the very first thing mentioned here. Well, how did they forsake God? They stopped glorifying Him as God and it didn't add any profit in their life. Look at 12. Be astonished, O heavens, at this and be horribly afraid. Why? 
Hebrews 10, 31 says, It's a fearful thing to fall in the hands of the living God. Right before that, he says, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. It's a fearful thing to forsake God. But now notice 13. For my people have committed two evils. Number one, they have forsaken me. The fountain of living waters. What does that mean? He is the fountain. It's continually flowing of what? Living waters, eternal life, light, righteousness, grace, love. He is the fountain of eternal waters. When I forsake God, I'm going to go to what? What else can I go to? Look, look what else. And this is symbolism here. And hewn themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. When we leave God, what do we go to? When we leave God, what do we go to that holds eternal life? Nothing. What do we go to that will give us thirst? Remember the passage we started at this morning in John 4? Remember that the topic with the woman was worship, but you know right before that, the topic was water? And he says, if you knew who I was, you would ask me to give you a drink of everlasting water. And, and she couldn't fathom this, and finally she knew this. She says, well, if it'll make me never come back to this well and draw again, if I'll never be thirsty again, give me the drink of that living water. Friends, he says, he says to Judah, you had God. You had a fountain of living water. It was always there. And you turned to a cistern. Look at this next picture. Look at, look at this cistern. It's believed that this would have been the type of cistern that, that would have been talked about in this time period. It would have been an underground well that, that water would have been man-made oftentimes, fed from, from water, from rainwater, so that their, their villages and their communities would have a place that the water would be held so that they could go during the dry spells and they could go down and get the water that's been caught. Now think, on the outside... Looking down, that looks like a good cistern. What happens when we leave God? Things can look real good. But what's the reality? You go down in the well to get water and you say, there's no water here. Sure it is. It rained just last week. There has to be water. No, there's no water here. Why? The cistern's broken. This is going to sound really, really corny or foolish. But this is how foolish it is to turn from God and expect something good. I want you to imagine right now a five-gallon bucket of water. And that's your living water. It, is, it never goes dry. It's continually full. And somebody says, well, I want to leave God, but I still want the blessings of life. Here, I'm going to put my elbows and my arms together, and I want you to pour that five-gallon bucket of water over here so I can hold that living water without God. I'll just take care of it on my own. Can you imagine somebody pouring that water and you trying to catch it? And after it falls all over the ground, how much living water do you have now? Judah left the fountain and they looked like a real good cistern. Josiah had cleaned them up. He'd burned their images. He'd broken down their altars. He'd run the prostitutes out of the temple. He had cleaned up the land. But there's one major problem. And let's close by looking at Jeremiah the third chapter in verse 10. Jeremiah 3 and 10. And yet, for all this, her treacherous sister Judah has not turned to me, this is God speaking, has not turned to me with her whole heart, 
but in pretense, says the Lord. Oh, it looks like she's turned to me. The idols are destroyed. But Judah never gave me her heart back. It's just a pretense. It's just for show. The truth is it's vanity. The truth is it's a lie. And this morning, it isn't, it isn't the, the type of lesson that, hey, there's, there's something going on and let's target it. This is personal. This is a lesson where I have to look in my heart and you have to look in your heart. And, and there's probably nobody around you that knows the truth on this except you because you're the only one that, is, that knows you as a cistern. Are you a broken cistern? Are you broken down? Are you truly leaning upon God? And have you truly given your life to God? Listen, I can't go out and live like a heathen in the week. I can't be a hypocrite in the week. I can't be a gossiper during the week. I can't be one that, that stirs up uh, people's anger in the week. I can't be immoral in the week and then show up on Sunday morning and say, I'm a true worshiper. I'm genuine. I'm a whole cistern here. No. Just like Judah couldn't burn the idols and fake their worship to God and him say, I accept it. God is looking for true worshipers. And this morning, I hope every one of us can say, I love God with all my heart. It's no pretense. I'd lay down my life for God without hesitation. It's no pretense. And because of that, I'm here to worship God this morning because I love Him that much. This morning, if we can help you in any way, if we can help you restore that love, that relationship, if we can help you build it for the first time coming to be baptized into Christ, if we can help you in any way as just brothers and sisters encouraging each other, we're not just talking about only a religion this morning. We're talking about a life that loves and embraces the religion that the Almighty God gives us. And this morning, if we can help you in any way, come as we stand and as we sing.